He's swimming. Every, every time he does. Yeah, I do. I ain't guessing. Film study. Here, I, I study field goal so much. I told you. I told you. Welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar Aparicio, and this week, the NFL Draft is in the books. Uh, with his office decorations, Matt Nagy showed us that NFL coaches can be sociopaths. And with me this week to tell us all about how his cat drafted his fantasy football team, it's David Newman. I need to hear more about this Matt Nagy thing. I did not see this. Did you not see his office from where he was drafting? No, man, I wasn't really paying. I didn't watch much of the live broadcast of the draft. I didn't catch a ton of it. But what I did see was Matt Nagy in a, a maybe like a four by four room. And it was floor to ceiling, like written scrawl and post-it notes and news articles. I was half expecting like Charlie Day to come out with red strings and be like, ah, uh, it just it's like, wow, you I don't understand how you exist in this in this room. This is weird. It, it looked like he tried to give himself a beautiful mind by making it look like his room was decorated by someone from the movie, a beautiful mind. It was, it was bad. It was not good. Tried to give himself a beautiful mind. That, uh, <laughs> I think that says it all right there. Yeah, indeed. Uh, but man, it is, it's done. It's the, the team looks and feels different than it did before the weekend. Uh, so let's talk about it, my friend. Let's talk about it because we were we were recording some stuff for the Patreon. We have our, our scouting profiles up for Brandon Ayuk and Javon Kinlaw on the Patreon. If you want to get access to those, definitely go to patreon.com forward slash better rivals. But we're we're recording on Skype. We're just we've got Twitter in the background as we're watching some film, and it's just like trades happening, trades happening, people are moving. It's like I, I could wow, okay. A lot happened, even though they had three picks. And maybe those three picks from Sunday uh, may not even make the team. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I didn't pay any attention to this draft on Saturday. Uh, Like, I would check in periodically just to be like, okay, do they still have the slotted pick? Like, are they still about due to pick? And then if they were, like, okay, I'd I'd hang around and see who they had. But, yeah, Saturday, man, I wasn't into the virtual Saturday draft. There's just not a whole lot going on there. But for the 49ers, yeah, it's – uh, I mean, we're going to talk a little bit more about, you know, those three guys, I think, um, kind of in depth more at the end. But uh, I think I'm excited about at least one of those three picks, which is more than I can usually say about what happens over the final three rounds. Well, before we get to those picks, let's talk a little bit about the sadness in all of our hearts. And that's one Mr. Joe Staley. He retired. He is no longer going to be uh, an active member of the 49ers, even if he will be a 49er in spirit forever. Man, it, it was rough to see that he retired. I, I thought he was coming back for another year. I thought he had another year in him. And apparently, you know, his body was just telling him that it was time to go. And, and you know, his farewell letter had one bit in it that kind of hit close to home. And, and maybe, David, you kind of feel the same. But he, he talked about how he always wanted his daughters to feel like he was going to choose them first. And I was like, oh, man, I get that. I really get that. Because he, I mean, he's given 13 long years to this team. Um and, you know, he, apparently he's got some degenerative neck issue that, you know, would have been exacerbated by playing. Um, I don't know if it's a degenerative neck issue, but it was a neck issue that he, that he referred to that maybe would have been exacerbated. And so, yeah, I, man, I feel it. And I, I wish him the absolute best. He's been an anchor for this team from the time where he was opening holes for Frank Gore on completely inconsequential games uh, to, you know, doing the worm for a Pepsi commercial. To, to, you know, achieving his goal of just playing for one franchise, he did it, and he did it at the highest level. Um, and for that, it's, it's hats off to Joe Staley. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be so weird watching a 49ers game without him on the field, right? And, like, knowing that he's not going to come back. I mean, God, that comment about the daughters, that really hits right now. You know, I think that's something uh, that has been on both of our minds a lot lately. And I think for me, um, you know, that's something I've been thinking a lot about as it relates to like my career and, and how that uh, could be changing. So, I mean, I, f- I feel that very much and it's hard 
uh, to ever fault a guy for like choosing his family and choosing, you know, to make that decision when he, when he feels like his health is in jeopardy, but it is going to be very weird watching 49ers games without him. I was thinking about my favorite Joe Staley memories. And, and of course the first one that comes to mind is the, him escorting Alex Smith down the field in that 2011 divisional game against the New Orleans Saints. That's probably my most vivid memory of him just like sprinting down the field, getting a, yeah. a block on the edge and, and letting Alex Smith walk in. But I decided I was going to do something else. I decided I was going to look back at some of his plays, his rookie year, and look at his, his, one of his best games from his rookie year and, and watch that tape. And that took me to week 12 in 2007 against the Arizona Cardinals. This is your two and eight San Francisco 49ers going up against the five and five Arizona Cardinals led by none other than Kurt Warner and a spry Larry Fitzgerald man. (laughs) Uh, So Joe Staley is playing right tackle at this time. He's not playing. Jesus. Really? Oh yeah. That was a thing. He's playing right tackle at this time. And, and the quarterback for the 49ers is, I'm going to go ahead and let you guess here. Who do you think the quarterback? 2007, Mike Nolan, Mike Singletary, uh, quarterback for the Niners, go. 2007. So, I mean, this is, so we're Alex Smith time, but Alex Smith hurt time, I think. You are uh, getting warm. So, Sean Hill? Ooh, close. Trent Dilfer. Okay. All right. This yeah. is Trent Dilfer's last hurrah. Uh, still wasn't good at this point in his career. Uh, but this game was nuts. This game was absolutely wild. Frank Gore had over 200 total yards. The, the game goes into overtime. The Niners have 14 points off turnovers. And they end up winning in overtime. I'll give you one guess as to how. A blocked field goal return for a touchdown. Almost. A safety by none other than Tully Bantacane. Tully Bantacane of spin move notoriety because that was the only thing in his tool belt. Former Patriot. And, yeah. and I mean, that, that was the team we were rolling with. And Joe Staley was out there pass blocking, run blocking, much better than he was pass blocking, but still doing, doing the Lord's work, really. He looked a lot. What's funny is you watch him back then and you watch him now. He looks slower then. He looked bigger, heavier, a bit more plotty than he does now. He looks much lighter on his feet now. I think he's definitely dropped weight and probably did the thing that some players do where they take a little bit better care of themselves as they get later into their career. Right. Um, but, but he, I mean, he was still a very agile left tackle uh, or at that time, right tackle. And, and back then, he, you know, he really made his money off of his run blocking. He developed those pass blocking skills a little later in his career. I think maybe 2011, 2012, once you start getting into the Super Bowl years, um, and, and he really is, I mean, he is the, uh, he's the, the definition of a professional, someone who took the sport seriously and was on the cutting edge of what we want left tackles to be now. He was just there a few years before everyone else. Yeah. I mean, uh, we're going to have to go back. I mean, I, I did not do the thing now right away. Like where I went back and like watched an early career Staley game, but we've talked about watching some games, you know, as we kind of get into the real dead part of the off season here, kind of going back and, um, watching some old games again. We might have to make one of the games we watch like an old Joe Staley game. I don't know if we'll go like 2007 or something. Let's try, we might try to find some better football than that, but a good old Joe Staley game uh, might be one of those for sure. There's a piece of me that really wanted to do the, um, like the, the two games that separated the wins in Seattle for Staley. The, the clinch by an inch game just this last year and then the 2011 game. Uh, with Alex Smith that that was the last time that he won in Seattle. I thought about maybe doing those, but maybe we'll put a question up on the Patreon to, to see which games we do, and, and we'll go from there. But yep. now that he's at the end of his career, I think the question on a lot of people's lips is, is he a Hall of Famer? I think the presumption is that he is, especially among Niners fans. But I'm curious what you think, you of the Frank Gore not to be in the Hall of Fame opinion. Uh, Man, we had to bring that up? Like, I know, come on, I know. come on. I get it. I get it. It, there's a case to be made there. Uh, it's not unreasonable. Uh, but I'm curious what your take is on uh, on Joe Staley. Yeah, so to me, I mean, I think Staley is kind of in the opposite situation, right? Where I, I think Frank Gore is a guy who almost certainly will get in. Um, when you look at what it takes for running backs to get in the Hall of Fame, you know, it's it's really largely dependent on 
the uh, kind of raw counting stats that they're able to compile over the course of their career. And a guy that has the numbers that Gore has is just like there's, I think, very little chance that he doesn't make it in at that point. But I don't know that he was really ever at a Hall of Fame level as a player at any single point in his career. Staley, I think, is the complete opposite of that, right? Where it's just, it's so hard for offensive linemen to get into the Hall of Fame. Like, there's just very few of them in there relative to the number that should be in there. Um, and so it, it really takes guys that are, um, like, really no-brainer. Like, everyone knows their name. Like, even the the most casual football fan, right? Like, probably knows who Joe Thomas is. Joe Thomas has been hyped as probably a Hall of Fame-type player since he was a rookie. Um, and, and so it takes that kind of, like extended exposure and just like hearing that the guy like should be a hall of famer for, for a number of years to get in at that spot. Um, and so a lot of good players don't make it in. So I think for Staley from the caliber of play that he had absolutely belongs in the hall of fame. I think he had a number of seasons over the course of his career where he was maybe the very best tackle in the league. And, and certainly for an extended run where he was, you know, among the three, four in that conversation, um, and I just don't know if that's going to be enough, though, for him with the way the Hall of Fame voting works, unfortunately. Yeah, you know, you think of the tackles recently that made it. You've got Orlando Pace, who last played in 2009. You've had Walter Jones, who last played in 2008. Jonathan Ogden, who last played in 2007. And Willie Rofe, who last played in 2005. It looks like there's not really more than one slot for an offensive lineman. You're not going to get like two offensive linemen. It happens very, very rarely. And when you look at the players who are queuing up to get into the Hall of Fame, you've got Joe Thomas, Andrew Whitworth, and Tony Baselli. And incidentally, Tony of the Jaguars fame, uh, he was drafted in the expansion draft, I think, by the Jacksonville Jaguars. That's the thing I remember yeah, most about Tony Baselli. That's right. Yep. Um, but Tony Baselli and, and Alan Fanica are the only two linemen who have received Hall of Fame votes in the last four years that are not in. So if there's a backlog, they might clear in first. I, I think you're right. He's going to be largely dependent on the case that it feels Matt Mayoko makes for him because Matt <laughs> Mayoko basically was on a campaign to get Terrell Owens in the Hall of Fame, and it kind of worked. He, if, if you're not familiar with the mechanics of the Hall of Fame, effectively it's a bunch of writers, media members, some former players that all are voting members of the Hall of Fame committee, and they can effectively stump and argue and make cases and often do for certain players that they feel should get in. And they make evidence books and they give speeches and they bring letters from former players and teammates in as evidence. Not quite court-like, but it, it does feel like if you have a strong advocate in that room, you may yeah. over time wear people down and get in. And Matt Mayoko, I think, as, as a human, is beloved amongst that group of Hall of Fame voters. And so if he says Joe Staley could and should get in, I think that will carry some weight. But, but it th really depends on whether or not he's going to have that advocate in the room, because I agree. I think he should be a Hall of Famer based on his play on the field. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, unfortunately, the relative lack of team success, right, not winning a Super Bowl, I think, is going to hurt him. So I think, yeah, having you know, somebody like Mayoko in his corner who can really kind of present the case and, and be able to explain what made him so great because yeah, there's not a lot of great. It's not like a receiver, right? Where you can go or a running back, you can go and there's, there's a ton of information about how well they played um, over the course of their career. You just don't have that same kind of stuff there when it comes to offensive linemen. So uh, yeah, I think again, he absolutely belongs in there. When you look at the tackles over the last decade plus, and really over the course of his entire career, to me, he's one of easily like the three or four best tackles of that era. But the Niners pivoted pretty quickly. They knew he was going to retire ahead of the draft. And so they were working with Washington to get a deal for Trent Williams. And while I do very much love the player that is Brandon Ayuk, and I'm excited to watch Kinlaw play, I think this deal for Trent Williams was probably their best move of the weekend. Because they, they knew that he was retiring, but they had the patience to not draft, some, to feel like they were locked into drafting someone like Tristan Wirfs at 14, knowing that Staley was retiring. But you had Trent Williams at Washington, and a Washington team that maybe didn't want to trade him to the 49ers because Dan Snyder's relationship with the Shanahan's is very fractured. And apparently the Niners in inquired last year about trading for him and were summarily told, no, that's not the case. 
And, and so now he reaches out again. And with the new regime in Washington, things are a bit more open. And, and finally, the deal was made. Ultimately, it's a fifth round pick this year, a third round pick in 2021 for one of the premier tackles in the game, an all pro tackle that is four years younger than Joe Staley and who is an athletic beast of a man that moves in ways that you think are in fast forward when you watch it on tape. It's, it's absurd what he can do at his size and, and some poor corner is going to eat it and maybe die at some point when he's pulling <laughs> and, and he just like, it just, this is the, the kind of business decision inducing human that is running at you on the sideline where you just nope out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's shit. That's what I would do. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I think, um, it's, it's hard to imagine a better transition, right? Like than than going from Staley to a player like Trent Williams. I mean, he's maybe, one of the only players in the entire NFL where it's it's possible if we're getting a fully healthy like back to normal Trent Williams uh that is potentially an upgrade over Staley right like he has that sort of ability um that they're gonna add there and I think I mean honestly when you when you think about them and and their ability to contend again in 2021 uh or excuse me in 2020 like um this might've saved them in a lot of ways. Like if you go to, and again, we've talked a lot about offensive line and you really, I think largely just need to be competent at each spot, right? If you can have like a solid, like just decent player at all five positions, like you're largely going to be okay. But if you have a tackle that like, if, if they just, if this happened too late for them to be able to, to get a like reasonable replacement in there, right. They couldn't get a trade uh, done for like a veteran to bring in there. You know, they stuck with Kinlaw at 13 and didn't take a tackle at that spot. Like, you're potentially like really hurting at one of your tackle spots, right? Like obviously you have McGlinchey that can hold down one of them and maybe you move him over to the left side or whatever, but like you're, you're potentially in a really bad spot with that other tackle spot. And, and that can really just like tank your offense. If, if you are so weak on a spot that they can, you know, defensively they can just kind of go after that and it becomes such a weak link that you just like can't do a whole lot to compensate for it. Um, that's that's real bad for your offense, and I think that could be you know something that was really the difference. And so I think if they are uh, a, a contender again in 2020, I mean we're going to look back at this Trent Williams trade as like a big reason why that remained the case. Well, we saw a little bit of what that offense looked like for the 49ers when Staley and McGlinchey were both out. It was a lot of incredibly quick passes. It was short concepts. It was running everything to protect the edges, knowing that Jimmy Garoppolo yep. wasn't going to have a ton of time and. I don't think that the Niners were really... I don't think they had to worry as much last year because they were able to build leads early and then rely on the running game. And especially for young tackles, I think run blocking where you're getting out and attacking and, and you know your assignment and, and you've got a bit of, of that forward momentum and you're not waiting to react against once the defensive... What a, a more athletic defensive end does puts you at a bit of an advantage if you're a younger tackle. But but if they were down or if they, you know, if, if things don't go their way in 2020 and you're working with, you know, kind of not a, a good, as good of a tackle, I think you begin to see problems. But you mentioned one thing about Trent Williams, and that's if he's fully healthy. I don't know that I remembered all the full details of the whole Trent Williams saga in Washington. So I went back and read some articles and it's not it's not great, Bob. It's not great. <laughs> So Trent Williams, the whole reason that he was mad at, at the Washington controversies was because he had this growth on his head. And it was he was told for years that it was just a cyst on his head. Don't worry about it. It's just a cyst. And it's growing because of his frequent use of a helmet. So he goes to the doctor to get this removed in January of 2019. Turns out it's cancer. He's got, and another cyst was growing on, on a different part of his head. So he thinks he just it's getting painful. I'm just going to get these cyst removed. no big deal. His doctor's like, whoa, this doesn't look quite like just the cyst. And, and so he goes to get them both removed. Doctors told him it would take 12 to 16 months for the nerves in his scalp to calm down. And in November of 2019, he still didn't have feeling in 50% of his scalp. The surgery required 350 stitches and 75 staples. Dude. He's working with Riddell to get a customized helmet. And while he's now cancer-free, 
he's going to undergo testing every six months. So he basically didn't trust the Washington team, the Washington medical staff, and wanted nothing to do with that franchise and basically said they have a history of underreporting or misdiagnosing injuries, and, and he didn't want to play for them at all. And that's what created the situation. So while I do absolutely hope that he is 100% healthy, um, that, that is definitely a concern if you're a Niners fan, because if he's not healthy, you're, you're back in the spot. Right. And yeah, I mean, which man, all of that is just like scary and wild and, and completely understand why he wanted the hell out of there. But uh, yeah, I think, you know, from a football perspective, you're, you're hoping even if you can get, you know, if you, even if you're getting 80% of Trent Williams, you know, you're still in a pretty good spot. And I think the point you made about like us getting a, a sort of a glimpse of that is a good one, right? And when, when they were out this past season, but I think the difference, right, is for this season would be like, you can get by with that kind of restricted game plan for a couple of games. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons you mentioned like the, you know, them playing from ahead and, and all of these things that can kind of go into it and you can kind of piece it together for a couple of games. It's a completely different animal to try and make that adjustment over the course of a full season. Like you just can't survive 16 games doing nothing but like throwing passes five yards downfield so you can get the ball out of your hand quickly. It's like just not going to work. Now, one thing I did learn today about the potential compensation that the Niners would get if Trent Williams leaves um, was surprising because I'm thinking to myself, okay, you're, you're potentially mortgaging more of the future, which we saw was a problem this year in the draft when you're talking about missing the picks you gave for Emmanuel Sanders and for D Ford. And while D Ford is still on the team, Emmanuel Sanders is not. He chose to sign with the New Orleans Saints after the Niners, you know, pursued, but perhaps didn't have the money to pursue as much as some other teams were able to. And so you think to yourself, okay, what if this is Emmanuel Sanders 2.0? You give up some picks and you're not able to sign him to a long-term deal. What, what, the hope here is that if he leaves after one year, he ends up signing a, a, a big money contract for two or three years. And that means you get a third round compensatory pick in return. And while that is in 2022, then you know, that means that you basically just kick the third, row, the, the third round pick down the line. And all it really cost you was a fifth. But... There's this rule that says that for players with 10 or more years, the maximum compensatory pick that you can earn is a fifth round pick. Well, that's fucking so, stupid. Yeah, it, and, and that rule doesn't apply to quarterbacks. So Phillip Rivers, Tom Brady, you can still get a, a third round compensatory pick for those players. But for any other position, if that player has 10 or more years in the NFL, then the maximum compensation that you can get is a fifth round pick. And so worst case scenario here is it would cost the Niners truly a third round pick. They would get the fifth round pick back. Uh, and for the Niners and John Lynch, hey, you know what? Maybe that's, that's the way to go because fifth round picks have been more valuable than some third God. round picks for the Niners. God. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, you know, it, when you look at it from a, the, the perspective of, you know, even if it is, again, that worst case scenario and, and you're, only getting him for a season and you're essentially giving up a third round pick for it. I think that's still a deal that you feel comfortable doing, you know, every single time, like e even with him only being there, you're, you have a window right now that you're obviously like trying to maximize and you're trying to see if you can get back to the Super Bowl again and, and kind of like extend this run as long as possible. And, like the potential value that you get from Williams, you know, when he's healthy, even if it's only for a season is just like far outweighs what you're going to get from a typical third round pick. And so, yeah, I think that's a, a risk definitely worth taking. And, and I mean, hopefully he is now here, you know, for, for the next several seasons and, and is, you know, going to have the remainder of his best years in the NFL in San Francisco. And, and if you can keep him around, I mean, that's a, a move that has made your team, you know, much, much better over that stretch. So we got some other news about the draft straight from Shanahan's mouth. Uh, some tidbits of information from the TK show podcast that's on the athletic. Uh, and, and so I wanted to take just a second to chat about that. Shanahan was on the TK show interview and had a couple of interesting tidbits. I thought it would be good to run down some of those items and, and see if you've got any thoughts on them, David, because he talks about how Kinlaw was their target and they thought he may not be there, but if he wasn't, they were going to try and trade out 
and and get a receiver in the middle rounds. But if they were stuck at 13, they were probably going to take a tackle. And that meant that who was available was basically Tristan Wirfs at that point. Yeah. But their plan was to try to, to either get Kinlaw or trade out and get Ayuk at, at you know, in, in that 18 to 22 range. And, and the way that Shanahan positioned it was really smart. It was like, well, would you rather have Lamb at 13 or trade out, get a yuk at like 18 or 20? And if you trade from 13 to 20, you get an extra third rounder. Basically, the, the, you know, the value between Lamb and Ayuk is like, well, I don't know which one's going to be better. I kind of like Ayuk better and I can get some extra value later. Um, but th- that's not quite how it went because Kinlaw was their number one dude. And so when he was there, they said, that's the guy I'm taking. We love that guy. Right. I, it, was, it was funny to listen to because as he's explaining it, I mean, it's something that makes perfect sense, right? Because we, we talk about how a lot of times teams aren't considering that sort of like opportunity cost, right? Or the value of having multiple picks over just one pick that's a little bit higher, right? And so when he's talking about like, yeah, okay, so maybe we feel like, you know, Lamb and, and Ayuk are, are pretty similar caliber players overall. They're in a similar tier for us. But you, would you rather have just one of them? You know, would you rather have Lamb at 13 where you're going to have to take him or Ayuk a little bit later in the first round and then you get that third rounder, right? And I think as we've talked about a lot of times, you want to give yourself as many chances as possible. And like over the long run, you're more likely to benefit from taking that extra third round pick, right? Cause that gives you two shots. And if you hit on either one of them, well, then you're good. Um, but that's not what ended up happening at all. They ended up, you know, taking an extra pick that they had and using that to move back up. But I, I think you can, you know, again, at least understand the thought process there and where they're coming from, where they feel like, you know, we had a, a small number of players that we felt like were were really great fits for us and players that we wanted to target. And this was kind of our last chance to get one of those guys. And ultimately, while you do miss out on the value, it, you know, again, it comes down to the evaluation. And if both of those players are good players, then nobody's going to remember the trades. One thing to me was interesting. He said that if they would have traded, uh, if they would have not gone with a wide receiver at 31 and went with a tackle, that uh, that by the time they get to 31, they probably would have gone with another position. And, and that, I thought, was an interesting tidbit because to me it means that the, his wide receivers, they were probably clustered in a tier at the top. And, and he mentioned a couple of guys, but it, it sounds like Judy, he, he said that they thought Judy and Lamb were going to be one and two. Lamb was going to go first and then Judy somewhere in there. Ruggs, Ayuk, and maybe he's got one more player in there, but it's pretty clear that that was the top tier. And so for them, the logic in, in drafting or in trading back up was in their mind, trading back into that top tier and not going after that second tier of wide receiver. Now, whether or not that's true, who knows, right? That's, that's yet to be seen. It's one of the reasons why we don't do things like grade the draft, right? Because all you can really do right now is, you know, kind of grade perceived value, not necessarily much else, right? Um, the, the interesting thing is, though, is, is just to see how their board kind of falls. It, it was a really interesting and refreshing interview because it was very honest um, with, with Tim Kawakami. And whether or not the, the break in tier they're right about that, whether or not those are kind of the top cluster and, you know, the, the, the Justin Jeffersons of the world and the Mims and, and those guys end up being in a second tier, you know, who the hell knows, but it's pretty clear that that's how they had their board fall. And so to them, they got two players in their top t- in the top tier of their board when they thought maybe they could only get one. Right. Yeah. And I, I again, like, um, it that sort of move doesn't always work out, but you can, I think, at least understand the thinking and understand where they're coming from. And, um, you know, yeah, you f- if you feel like, you know, the receivers after that point, like, just aren't going to be good fits for you and aren't going to, um, you know, be players that you think can come in and help your team. Because we talked about while there are a ton of, like, good receivers in this draft, there are also a ton of different types of receivers, right? And so I think as far as guys that we, you know, that have a lot of traits that that we know the 49ers value, um, there weren't a lot of them that would have been left, you know, at that end of the first round or even once you get into kind of, like, 
you know, day two players, uh, if they would have accumulated some picks in that range, um, you know, it's a lot of guys that were like bigger players, contested catch players, you know, guys that don't really fit the mold of what they look for at that position. So yeah, I mean, if you feel like that's the last guy that, that can potentially help your team and like fit what you want to do offensively. Um, yeah, again, if you hit on that and you're right, like they're going to be a better team if those two players are both good. So what's interesting is that Kevin Cole from PFF, a uh, friend of the pod, did a really interesting article about some comps when it comes to Brandon Ayuk, and he, and he took basically some factors that are consistent, measured them across doing fancy math stuff, you know, all the things that we love here uh, at the Better Rivals pod, and came out with with comps for, for the wide receiver prospects. This is before he knew that Ayuk was going to be drafted by the 49ers or was indeed drafted by the 49ers. And the closest comp is Robert Meacham, drafted from Tennessee back in 2007. Uh, both drafted in their 22nd year. They were 22 years old, uh, both fast guys there, and basically said, you know, what other players comp? A.J. Brown also comps to Much Brandon better. Ayuk. It's a better 97%. One. Steve Smith out of USC also comps. Odell Beckham Jr. also better. comps. Sure. And then Greg Jennings. Also pretty solid. Yeah. Also very, very solid. So the, and what he did what was interesting was he basically said like what he, he's measuring war, wins above replacement and looks at their 75th percentile and 25th percentile outcomes of war by season, projecting what these players did over the course of their next three or four seasons and basically shows how they keep getting better. And then there's a bit of a drop off in season four, but overall they, they hover around, 0.2 wins above replacement. It goes to 0.3 wins above replacement in their next season. For comparison, Emmanuel Sanders was at about 0.4, about half a game of a win above replacement in 2019, which was very good. It was, I think, top 10, top 12 for wide receivers. So if you can get like 0.2, 0.3 wins above replacement in his first year, and it goes up you know, to 0.4, 0.5 in his uh, third or fourth year, that, that's pretty good. That's the ceiling. Now, the floor is actually pretty high compared to other players. Um, but but overall, I think when you look at comps, some of those players, you're like, yeah, Odell Beckham, great. Greg Jennings, I would even say, yeah, that's pretty good. A.J. Brown, Robert Meacham, okay, maybe not. But it's still interesting comps for someone like Brandon yeah. Ayuk. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, because, um, again, you mentioned how this was all stuff that was done prior to the draft and prior to the selection being made, and, and it's important to remember like how much fit can play a big role in, in whether those guys are maximizing those opportunities, right. And kind of hitting the higher end um, of what they might be capable of doing. And I think with Ayuk and the 49ers, that like combination, that marriage is, is a very good one for him, right. He's going to a situation um, that is, has an offense. that's going to put him in position to succeed and has a coach that's going to know how to utilize him. And so I think he's really in a spot where he's going to be able to maximize his skill set and, and really get the most out of what he can, uh, provide for the football team. And so, yeah, I, I think from that standpoint, cause you know, when we talk a lot pre-draft, you know, a lot, we try to tailor it obviously more to the 49ers, but a lot of the stuff that you hear, is you, you're trying to think more generally, right? Like what what kind of is good across the whole league? What What is like the most teams that he can fit in with? Um, but it's always going to be a little different with positions like that because, you know, they're going to be utilized differently depending on where they go. And so for him, I think it was, it was a very good landing spot and one that we're really happy with too. Now, there were still some players that were drafted day three, right? We talked about some, some other things. We haven't even talked about the departure of Matt Breida which we got to pour some out for our boy, Matt Breida. The, the train has finally reached its destination. We've got, we've got no more choo-choos. I think that's going to get put to bed. We, 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 we need something else at this point, and we may have found it perhaps with an undrafted free agent. But Marquise Goodwin found a home in Philadelphia, moved up in order to take some players. But basically with the day three picks and undrafted free agents, we really just want you to know one thing about these players that we think you should know that might help you contextualize and or place where this player could help uh, or why this player may not pan out for the 49ers. And we're going to start with Colton McKivitz, uh, who apparently was an option in the fourth round and the Niners drafted him in the fifth round. But he was, it, Shanahan said that if the Niners were not able to complete the trade for Trent Williams, 
that McKivitz was basically going to get thrown into the mix with Brunskill, with School, and, and figure out who rose to the top. Instead, he's a fifth-round pick, uh, and, and I'm, I'm glad uh, that <laughs> he was not someone that they thought was going to be the savior uh, because while I think he's got some skills that he can develop, I think there's definitely going to be some issues there when he goes up against NFL competition. I mean, when I first heard about them getting rid of the fourth round pick that they had just acquired, you know, what felt like 30 minutes earlier was, was not overly thrilled with that idea. But if I would have known at the time that they were just going to take Colton McKivitz with that pick anyway, I would have felt a lot better about it because that would have been, uh, I think a mistake. Yeah. I think they should feel, uh, and 49ers fans should feel very happy with the fact that they were able to get Trent Williams, because I think the thing that you want to know about Colton McKivitz, and I think something that's going to make it very difficult for him to succeed consistently, uh, in the NFL is he has a massive play strength issue. Um, he just consistently, will get worked with the bull rush. And, and I think it's across kind of all facets of his game. So, I mean, obviously we, we like to focus uh, a bit more on the pass protection side, but you see it in the run side as well. And it's um, in his pass protection sets though. It's not only like letting guys, once they get into him, not having the play strength to be able to anchor against those and, and be able to kind of slow them up. But even his punch is kind of weak. Like there's everything about his game is kind of weak. And so I think, um, yeah, he, he's not a guy that I think profiles because of that as an option that can move in and potentially play guard. So I think they, they are going to be looking at him as potentially like a swing tackle option. And I think where he's at right now, he, he's nowhere ready to see an NFL field. Like they need to hope that he can somehow, once he gets into that NFL strength and conditioning program, like get stronger and find a way to, uh, to, to fix that issue because if he's getting bold consistently from college players, like it's just going to be game over for him in the NFL. You know, when I'm going through these positions, it's pretty clear that the team is drafting with, with need in mind. And, and that's not a bad thing necessarily. Right. I think if you need a wide receiver and you've got the deep class of wide receivers, you go and you get a couple. That's not, that's not a bad way to play it. Um, but you know, I wonder what best pick available would look like for a lot of boards, um, because I think it looks like Green Bay and Philly and people are rioting in those cities because it looks like best player available. Um, so that's that's, you know, an interesting uh, an interesting side note. But now we get to Charlie Warner, uh, who sounds like either someone of the southern nobility uh, or, you know, someone who wears a lot of bow ties. Charlie Warner just sounds like, you know, a guy who enjoys mint juleps on a warm day out on the porch. Dear you know, God. It just, and, and, and he played it at Georgia. So, you know, I get it. Sure. I totally yeah. get it. Uh, but I think that the one thing to know about Charlie Warner is that, it, he, you know, it sounds like he runs a newsroom, I think. That's, that's what it is. <laughs> he runs a newsroom. Uh, but Charlie Warner is Toy Lolo's replacement. He is not Kyle oh Juszczyk's replacement. He is going to be your run blocking specialist, and and hopefully he can be that. Uh, I'm going to take it one step further. He's no one's replacement. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. So so I think the 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 issue right, right why that's the case right. Um, so run blocking was by far the only notable part of his game at Georgia. Like had uh, essentially but his run blocking was pretty good. Yeah. So so he was pretty good in that facet. Like want to want to definitely give him credit there. Like he has. Um, some impressive reps as a run blocker, you know, again, in the SEC, not playing, you know, just uh, crappy competition week in and week out. So going up against some, you know, good quality defenses there put together a really impressive run block grade for a tight end. I'm not here for this Texas slander, David. I hear the I hear the subtweet in your voice. Don't talk this, about Texas under your breath like that. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> this is this is the potential issue, though, right? Um, one, he's so if he's going to play tight end, because, right, there's been some talk about does he play tight end? You know, this is why this was our, our point, not use check. Is he going to play fullback? Because he played a decent amount of fullback at Georgia. And, and you know, our Mike Renner in, in the PFF draft guide mentioned that, like, that might have been his best role at Georgia was playing fullback. Um, he's not going to play fullback, or at least he, it's probably not a good idea to play him at fullback in the NFL because he's just too tall, right? He's 6'5". Um, that's just a bad recipe for a, a player and the leverage that you need to have on a lot of those blocks, like just largely not going to work out well for him. So if you look at him as a tight end at that point, you have two issues that pop up as, as far as like that run blocking, being able to translate to the NFL. And it's one, he's 
becomes a much light lighter player than your typical like run blocking tight end. I think he was like 240, 245 um, is, is what he weighed in at. And then he's also got tiny arms. So he's got for a tight end that you want in that third percentile arm length um, for that player. And so it's just not a great combination, right? If you're going to be a run blocker in the NFL at tight end, you're going to be going up against a lot of edge defenders, right? A lot of defensive ends, a lot of outside linebackers. And those are the guys that you're going to have to take on, you know, week in, week out. So having an undersized guy with short arms just isn't a recipe to get that job done consistently. Yeah, all we're saying is that Brandon Ayuk's arm is longer than maybe Warner's arms. Like, just it's just it's gonna be a weird look. It's gonna be a weird you look know, for my dude. Little, little T Rex um, arms going on there. But but what we do know is that if you can do something relatively well in college, there's you know the 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 stickiness of it to the pros. There's some of it there, and so if you're looking at where he can actually contribute, if he if he makes the team, it's gonna yep. be as a run blocking specialist, and that's not a bad thing to have for a team that does value the run game and did run the ball down a lot of people's throats in 2019. So if he's going to stick, it's definitely going to be as that specialist run blocking tight end. But now we get to the seventh round and and this is where you look and you see maybe the, probably the most, the, the best value pick for the 49ers in this draft, certainly not the best player, but when you look at where this person was comped, what their skill set brings and you look, wow, in the seventh round in a deep receiver class, this is not a bad thing. Uh, and that's going to be one Mr. Jawan Jennings. The, the one thing you've got to know about Jawan Jennings is that, well, we're going to start with CeeDee Lamb. CeeDee Lamb broke 27 tackles in 2019. That was second most amongst draft-eligible wide receivers. The reason he's second is because Jawan Jennings exists. He had 30 broken tackles in 2019. And so he is in that run after the catch mold. He's a big dude who runs hard. And that's exactly the kind of bully that Shanahan wants in the slot. I think it's what he envisioned with Hurd when he drafted uh, Jalen Hurd last year in the third round. And now he is basically getting some Hurd insurance in case Jalen Hurd isn't able to recover from his injury. Right. I, I think as a player, Jennings is is very interesting, um, especially to get that at that point in the draft. Um, I mean, the reason he fell um, potentially is not very good. But when you look at him just purely on the field, um, he has the profile of a player that should have gone much higher. Right. He He's a guy that I think probably should have gone if you're looking purely on on field stuff um, more at the beginning of day three. Right. In that round four, round five range, as opposed to the end of day three. Um, and so to get that kind of value from a talent perspective is definitely big. Uh, he is not, you know, it's, it's kind of funny when you watch, um, Ayuk first and then go to watching Jennings and it's just like night and day from an athleticism standpoint. So he is not a top end athlete. Um, you know, it takes him, we, we talked about with Ayuk how, just the dude gets to top speed almost immediately, right? You see him take some of those screen throws and it's just like, two steps and the guy is feels like he's at top speed and he's separating away from guys and, and wrecking angles. Uh, Jennings, it, it, it takes more like 20 steps for him to get up to top speed, right? It takes a little bit for him to get going. The start stops, not really there. Um, but the best like way I feel like I get describe what he brings to the table. And, and this is both like as a route runner and the way that he also wins like after the catch. Cause that's definitely the strongest element of his game is it's just like, it's sort of like a craftiness, right? It's not, he, he's not overly sudden. He's not like a, a guy that's going to really um, wow you from an athleticism standpoint in, in the way that he moves, but he just has a great feel for it, right? He has a great feel for setting up routes and, and managing to get just a little bit of separation there. Um, when you look at his after the catch stuff and those 30 broken tackles that you mentioned, they're not all him running over guys. Like he is making guys missing there. And so there's just kind of like a, a craftiness to his game that I think is uh, something that projects well for him at the next level. And he's a legend, in Tennessee because of a 2016 game against Georgia where Georgia takes the lead with 10 seconds left. This is when Tennessee is ranked, I think, 11th and Georgia's ranked somewhere in the low teens. And, and at this point, you think the game is over. There, there were lots of Tennessee fans that have left the stands at this point. And, and then you've got basically a Hail Mary 
and Jennings catches the ball with just a few seconds left to win the game for Georgia. So much so that there is a child in Tennessee named Jennings Lee Kelly after Jawan Jennings. Uh, and this girl, interestingly enough, this, this, this baby girl was named by her mother, who is a Tennessee fan, and the father is a Georgia fan. And the mom lied to the husband and said Jennings was more like Waylon kind of thing because they had thought about Waylon as a boy's name. And then after the, the certificate was signed, it was signed, said, Liverage, you're on your way home. My dude gets a text message from his wife's friend that's like, ha, 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 I can't believe it happened. They named her after a Tennessee wide receiver who caught this Hail Mary pass <laughs> at a game that they were at in 2016 oh, after man. they had recently been married. Um, luckily, the dude took it in stride, and he was like, that's pretty awesome. That's legit. And, and I mean, at that point, what can you do when you've been completely rolled by not just Jawan Jennings in real life at a game that you were at, but by your wife, who is a better sports fan than you? I mean, she's just winning in every category, uh, and his daughter, Jennings Lee Kelly, uh, is a reminder every day of his program's <laughs> failure. And his failure uh, as a sportsman. Oh god! Yeah, just gotta just gotta take that L. Not a whole lot you can do about it. Could you imagine that? Like, what if what if your wife was just like, uh, why don't we name our daughter? I don't know, like Russell. <laughs> that shit wouldn't slide. I wouldn't. I'd why catch it. I'm not taking that we, L. Yeah, I can't even like. Why why don't we have her play soccer so she can have a long career as an NFL kicker later in life? You know, like these are the things that she's gonna come at you with. Yeah. And you've got to be prepared. Yeah, I mean, I'm prepared for some bullshit like let's name her Russell. Get the <laughs> fuck out of here. Not happening. <laughs> yeah, let's uh, let's. Yeah, I can't even like Mitch. Mitch. Mit, mit, I can't even think of like a, how you how do you convert a punter's name into into a girl's name? I don't know. I oh my god. It. Okay, is that? I think that's the the point, guys. We're all done. That's and on, no, as always, go Niners. I'm not here. <laughs> That's the ripcord. No, we've got one more. We've got one more to talk about because there is one, one more. We're not going to go through all of the undrafted free agents, but we will go through one. Uh, <laughs> one that has a little spark to him, and that's my dude, Jermichael Hasty. You know, you've got a void in my soul at this point because Matt Breida was ripped from my bosom too early. I thought I had one more year with him, and it turns out I did not. He is now partying, uh, partying it up in South Beach, and, and the Dolphins can enjoy wasting his talent and instead running Jordan Howard uh, in lieu of Matt Breida. But now we've got a, a hero that enters the fold, and that's Jermichael Hasty, Second in the class in Spark score, an athletic individual. He is stocky. He is short. You might even say he's like a rolling ball of butcher knives. And he's got ridiculous jump cuts, he is a player that I'm excited about. He's the early favorite for the Corey Sheets was our future player of the year. Sure. Yeah. I've got nothing to add to this conversation. <laughs> I'm going to let you have this one. I'll let you have this one. Man, this I need all something. all you right here. I need something. <laughs> I need something to latch onto at this point. Um, because, I mean, ultimately, this is where you get value for running backs. For sure. Yeah, undrafted guys, high athleticism. You, you don't overpay Matt Breida as much as we love him. You let someone else pay him on that second contract, and then you bring in the other incredibly athletic person that can hopefully pick up those snaps. Uh, and, and while I have no idea whether or not Jermichael Hasty is going to pan out uh, or whether he's even going to make the roster, I think he's probably going to end up on the practice squad for this year. Um, I do think that, you know, like Jeff Wilson, hey, you, you start on the practice squad, and then maybe because of injuries, you get some play time, you make a couple plays, and all of a sudden you look like you're a value pick. Uh, and that's how smart teams keep being smart. Uh, yeah. by finding those those players and not paying the ones that someone else needs to pay. Right. I mean, yeah, in all, in all seriousness, like this is how you should approach running back, right? Like this is is the way to do it. Like you should consistently be dipping into that well at the end, you know, day three picks, undrafted free agents, taking chances, especially in this scheme. We know that they like speed at that spot, um, you know, taking chances on athletic guys. And if you just kind of keep dip, dipping into that well year after year, like you're going to hit, right? This is the same sort of thing that we said about Brita when he was drafted. It's like, look, who knows if this guy will work out, but there's some ability there. There's clearly some NFL athleticism there. 
Um, you can see why he would be a fit in this type of scheme. Like this is what you want to take a chance on in those spots. And and you can find talent there consistently. Like we, we the, the NFL has shown us consistently year after year that you can find running backs later in the draft as undrafted free agents. And so I think, yeah, they're smart to keep going back to that and looking to add players in that range, you know, every year. Overall, after draft weekend, and not just because it was a live event with actual sports uh, that, that we didn't know the outcome to, I was really happy overall with the Niners draft. You know, there were things I liked, things I wasn't so happy with, but overall, I think they emerged from the weekend as, you know, either they maintained in key positions or in some cases, maybe they got unexpectedly better. Um, and, and I think taking two wide receivers in a very deep wide receiver class is great. You double dip. Uh, at a position that you need some help at, you get more chances to hit. And I think next year that wider, that wide receiving battle is going to be very interesting. Cause I think some, some fan favorites are not going to be on the team, uh, but you know what? They need some help there. And I think that's a good spot. So overall, I think it was a really good weekend for the 49ers. Right. Yeah. I think as you look back on it, you know, it's, it's definitely a different sort of draft where you don't have like the volume of picks, but I think especially when you include, the Trent Williams trade is just kind of part of like how you improved your team overall, you know, over the course of that weekend. And and looking back, I think from a draft perspective, you're largely going to live or die based on what you do with the players you select in the first hundred picks of the draft, right? Like those are the guys that if you consistently are hitting in those areas as consistently as you can in the draft, right? Um, what you do in the later rounds ultimately isn't going to matter a whole lot. Like, yeah, you hope um, that the darts you're throwing in that range can pan out and you get a guy like George Kittle, right, that you take in the fifth round. But that's not what most fifth round picks are giving you, obviously. Like, you're you're usually going to get your impact players um, kind of within those first three rounds. And when I think you, you look at what the 49ers had with those type of picks and you're getting, I think, two very good players, right, two good prospects, that you feel confident can come in and make an impact for your team right away. And if those two players work out, we're definitely going to look back at this draft as a success. So that about does it for this week's edition of the Better Rivals podcast. Make sure to get to our Patreon. We've got scouting reports for Brandon Ayuk and for Javon Kinlaw. So if you want to see with your own eyeballs the types of things that we're talking about and why we like those players so much, you can do so on the Patreon. We've got scouting videos with the All-22s so you can see some stuff. We're also going to actually do a scouting report on Jawan Jennings. He's the guy that won the poll in the Patreon for the player that we're going to do next. So we're going to scout Jawan Jennings this weekend and put that video up on the Patreon as well. That's at and- patreon.com forward slash Rivals. And I don't think like we've, I feel like we've said this enough, but like, thank you so much to those of you who have already subscribed to the Patreon. Like, um, I think the number of people that we have in these first like few weeks doing it is more than either of us thought that we would get at this point. And so just want to like, make sure that you guys know that we really appreciate that. I legit thought that it was going to be maybe like 10 or 15 people that I already knew fairly well from talking to them on Twitter over the years. Uh, And I was happy with that. (laughs) I thought it was going to be fine. Uh, But it's been it's been definitely beyond our expectations. So certainly thank you to those of you who have already upped uh, and to those of you that will in the near future. Thanks again for tuning in. As always, go Niners. Go Niners.